Hello and welcome to The Alcohol File, a podcast series that explores how we can better understand the impact of alcohol in our lives. This podcast is provided by Alcohol Action, Ireland's leading independent advocate for reducing alcohol harms. I am your host, Eunan McKinney, and today, along with a terrific panel of guests, we'll explore a number of issues relating to children and alcohol. Looking to the most recent Irish Health Behaviours in School-Aged Children study, we will discuss the experiences children have with alcohol through their teenage years. More broadly, we'll look at the wider impact of alcohol in children's lives and consider how are our children recruited into alcohol use so young? Why does Ireland's youth move so rapidly through its teenage years where 15 in every 113 year olds are experimenting with alcohol, but 93 in every 100 close out their teenage years as frequent drinkers, joining an unenviable group as the EU's leading binge drinkers? What are the principal drivers behind this behaviour? And what is the impact of alcohol marketing in recruiting children to an alcohol lifestyle? So to discuss these issues today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Searsha Nigaon. Searsha is a professor in health promotion and project leader in the Health Promotion Research Centre at NUI Galway and a principal investigator for the WHO's Health Behaviour in School-Aged Children's Study. Dr. Nora Campbell is Associate Professor in Marketing at Trinity College Dublin's Business School and has written widely on the commercial determinants of health. And finally, Dr. Sheila Gilhini, who is the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. So, Searsha, if we could maybe start our discussion with you and obviously recognising the very important work that you and your colleagues do in NUI Galway and in the Health Promotion Research Centre on the health behaviour in school-aged children. Um, this study really is a very comprehensive study and it has been running since 2006 and so affords us a very clear insight and understanding of young people's health and their well-being. And I understand that this is done largely by interviewing 15,000 children over a number of schools in Ireland. So maybe you could just talk us through some of the major headlines that came out of the most recent study, which was published in January earlier this year. Sure, Yunan, and, and thank you very much for the invitation. You're right, we've been working on um, HBSC, Health Behaviour in School-Aged Children, in collaboration with the European World Health Organisation Office since before 1998 when we collected our first data. So we've been collecting data every four years since 1998 and the most recent data was collected in 2018 and we reported the new national data just in January this year and luckily we also reported or released the new international data, data from 45 uh, European countries and North American countries just in May. So we have the most up-to-date information in relation to alcohol, which is a key health behaviour in this age group. Your last uh, podcast 
in this series, I think, showed very well how important alcohol is as a health-related uh, matter. And, and it's important for young people for a range of different reasons, not just the long-term bodily medical issues, but in terms of their ongoing uh, behaviours and risk exposure during adolescence. So the new data, Irish data, reinforces what we've been noticing over the last number of studies, which is that the rates of alcohol consumption and importantly, the rates of drunkenness have been going down over time. So right since 1998, when we collected data from 10 to 11 year olds up to 18 year olds, the numbers reporting or the proportion of children reporting that they've had a drink in the last month, that they've been drunk in the last month and the age at which they had their first alcoholic drink, that's all been changing. So the numbers have been going down. We see similar patterns with smoking and with, with other drug use as well. But it's in line with what's happening right across Europe. So this isn't an, a unique Irish uh, pattern. So unsurprisingly, older children much more likely to report that they've had a drink or been drunk or been drunk a number of times than younger children. It's very, very rare now in primary school children. Which is good to hear. Which is great news and really important. Um, and the same with smoking. Yeah. But by the time the children get to pre-leaving cert, the kind of 15 to 17 year old age group, alcohol consumption is very common. And why do you think that that level of, I think, I believe it, the figure is around 40% of 15 year olds um, you know, just that persistence, that that high level of 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 engagement at that age. You know, why? What do you think is the the persistent factor that's 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 driving that all the time? Well, I was looking at this, and around that forty percent in the girls, the fifteen to seventeen year old girls, it, that hasn't actually gone down since the last time we collected data in two thousand and fourteen. Um, but it's it's quite a big reduction from two thousand and ten. So it came down between 98 and 2010, and now it's stayed uh, stable. But what's actually happened, I think, is that it's become more equal across the social classes as well. So in, in the earlier years of the study, there used to be quite a big difference between children from higher social classes and those from lower social classes. And, and that difference isn't as apparent anymore. So it's much more equal across the different social groups uh, for girls particularly. So that's quite a big change that has happened. It may be that we know that for the girls particularly, they're often socialising with older boys or older children, whereas often the 15 to 17 year old boys are socialising with slightly younger children than themselves. So we know that's a factor for these older girls and, and it comes that comes across in a range of different behaviours that they engage in. Perhaps, Sheila, can I bring you in, Sheila, at this point, maybe just to expand that discussion a little bit and maybe just talk a little bit about the alcohol landscape off for children's lives. I mean, what, what do you think are the key drivers in relation to that persistent level of 40% of 15-year-olds consuming alcohol so young? And also, you know, that idea that, as we can see, as we go through the cohorts, you know, from 10 to 11, from 12 to 14 to 15 to 17, how increased, you know, there's a, almost a threefold increase in the level of, of engagement with alcohol. Maybe you talk us through some of the, what are the key drivers in relation to what's happening with children in relation to alcohol? 
Yeah, I think there's several things that at play here, and you know, one of the things that um, you know, Saoirse would know from from the the study is well, where do children get the alcohol in the first place? And uh, you know, one of the, the the most usual places is actually from parents, um, and or from friends, or from getting older people, older um, children to buy for them. And, you know, that's a driver. That's one of the places where people get it. But it, probably the very big thing is their, the exposure to marketing, the, you know, the amount of advertising that they see, the amount of uh, emphasis on, on whether it's, you know, if you're watching football or you're watching rugby or watching sport or you're into music, you know, the level of um, sponsorship that actually occurs there. And these are all things that are very much geared towards young people, where, where they're at, what are the kind of things that they're interested in, who are the influences that they have? So yes, their parents are very big influencers, but this wider kind of landscape is is absolutely enormous. I'm I'm interested, you know, speaking as a parent myself, and one of the reasons I got interested in alcohol was just that very question of you know, um, this persistent myth about uh, you know giving a child a drink in the kind of what they would call the controlled environment of home as maybe being a safer approach and you know be, being sort of this. Uh, idea that uh, if, you, if you give a child a sip at an early age and you do it in this protected home environment that perhaps this will be a safer approach to alcohol and you know there was a great study came out it's only a few weeks ago there it was done in Australia and it followed a, a cohort of, of young people over about seven years and looked at those who were being given sips of alcohol and those who were being given bigger drinks and those who were not being given any alcohol at all and you know the evidence was absolutely clear those who who got the sips of alcohol they were more likely to drink and they were more likely to drink to binge drink and you know, to use that that phrase you know, to drink drink harmfully and you know large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time and those who were actually given if you like real drinks you know a, a substantial drink unfortunately they were more likely to become dependent and this is just over the seven years of that study that you could actually see those things you know happening so i suppose i'm always just keen that people you know get that information that it really is a risky thing to do to, to expose children to, to alcohol at a, at a young age nora maybe we could ask you to 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 join in the discussion at this stage Sheila talked there about the, the i suppose the the pervasiveness of marketing of alcohol throughout throughout irish society and obviously it has a role to play in making alcohol attractive to children at, at some stage or young, younger people. And we can see from the numbers, obviously, you know, by the time Irish children leave their teenage years, you know, we, we, we have a level of nearly 93 percent of them are what they call regular drinkers. So you spoke recently for us at an event back in November 2019 where you talked at length about the, um, well, at short length, because you didn't have a huge amount of time to talk about, just the sophisticated strategies that are at play here. So maybe it, maybe you'd like to time to expand a little bit on that and maybe just talk to us how, how what is the role of marketing in attracting uh, younger people into, into a lifestyle of alcohol? Yeah, you know, I think as as Saoirse and Sheila point out, that there is this kind of initiation over the teenage uh, years. And obviously I'm talking uh, in very particular contexts like the UK and Ireland here because it is a kind of cultural context. 
And I would point out to uh, listeners that there was a paradigmatic change in the early 2000s in branding theory, such that it was understood by brand managers across global brands the world over that in an age of social media and networking, it wasn't a conversation between the alcohol brand and the consumer, this kind of so-called dyadic model. Rather, branding globally, whether it be for alcohol or for any other product, moved to what's known as the triadic model of branding. This meant that real value came not from the conversation between the alcohol brand and the end consumer, but rather from the conversations that were uh, able to be taken place between consumers and other consumers. So what has happened to the alcohol brand and how it sees its role is not only or not necessarily as a communicator of product but rather as a facilitator of uh, experiences between like-minded groups. So this is a um, kind of acknowledgement that value comes not in information exchange between the brand and the end user, but uh, value comes from the brand enabling experiences between users. So brands have moved to becoming much more backgrounded facilitators of those experiences. And I suppose you can see that in things like a movement in a lot of kind of the top 10 alcohol brands in the UK and Ireland uh, that uh, are popular among underage drinkers um, like uh, Captain Morgan's, like Koppenberg, etc. And uh, I'll take examples from these if I may, but one of the things that they do is they create uh, new times and new opportunities for drinking so I'm just looking here at the Captain Morgan Twitter feed I've no I like I mean I've no I, I don't think I've ever tasted Captain Morgan I'm sure it's delicious but uh, moving to the idea of a virtual happy hour or uh, creating a time called tiki time which is a kind of kind of Caribbean themed idea of kind of uh, this is going to be your proper getting loopy time um, or World Cocktail Day, obviously not necessarily initiated by a brand uh, like Captain Morgan. But my point is in enabling the creation of time, it creates kind of new cultural opportunities to drink. And it's not really a facilitation of, look, here's a bottle of Koppenberg and this is how cool the packaging is, but rather this is a kind of new time. And new places for drinking so that it it unfolds as a kind of a brand insinuating itself into part of the ritual of going out for example and just by associating itself with a proper night out or it getting ready to go out by lots of things like for example Smirnoff it's advertising it's all around, you know, women getting ready in each other's houses. So what I would say is that the, the movement has gone away from uh, necessarily, you know, describing what an alcohol brand looks like or, uh, for, you know, what it tastes like. It's not that kind of paradigm of 
connoisseurship or uh, learning how to taste alcohol, but rather the alcohol brand sees itself as, as a facilitator of new spaces and new times. And I suppose to do that, Nora, it, that the brand maker, the brand creator has to understand the human emotions that are involved in, 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 in young people's lives uh, and, and has to presumably shape some of the narrative around some of those experiences as well and, and perhaps how they can recreate those experiences in their own lives. Absolutely. But it's done as a, a, a background thing and it necessarily has to be in order to avoid uh, increasing regulation in the space around advertising. So it isn't about a kind of a prescriptive display and information exchange, but rather as a facilitator by creating kind of new spaces, new times, and by creating new subjectivities, I guess. So one of the things that uh, is so obvious and it's difficult because it's very hard to stop is that uh, young people will drink um, because it is a, a almost indispensable prop in identity formation and the identity that every young person wants to form is one that is in contradistinction to the big other whether that big other is uh, an authoritarian regime um, like capitalism or if it is a parental or familial uh, stricture or if it's an institutional stricture like school. That makes kind of uh, social marketing campaigns and anti-alcohol campaigns um, uh, backed into a very invidious position of doing one of two things, which is either becoming the parental uh, or the paternalistic voice of you must not because this will kill you um, or it's really bad for you or it becomes a, an even worse figure and voice which is the kind of cool dad of kind of I'm on your level I can kind of understand you and you know let me get down with you guys and you know give you a safer option both of which definitely create the the ick factor for uh, young people yeah just to go back to you, Sersha, I think, you know, you can see some of the outcomes of that in the questions that you asked around the availability and where it was that that kids were actually getting the alcohol. And it, quite interestingly, you know, the level of, of, of exposure that children were getting from their home and from their parents or from somebody else in their home was, was quite high. Can you just maybe just talk us through some of the key findings on, you know, both the the source of the alcohol and secondly, the consumption of the alcohol? Sure. I, I think this goes back clearly to what Sheila was saying a few minutes ago, or some of this does, uh, this persistent myth. And, and, and it's really important to underscore that it, it, it isn't accurate, that a number of adults think that if children can learn how to drink safely in their own homes, that that will in some way protect them. And, and I would probably have thought that myself before I looked at the data some years ago. It's not accurate. What it does is expose young people unnecessarily to drinking environments and makes them believe that they're safer than they are. So what we do find in the data of, uh, this time round was that the most common source of alcohol was from a, either a parent, a guardian or from a friend. And it was more likely to be from a parent or guardian amongst younger children, those under 15. Now, it's really a minority of children that are drinking at this age. This isn't 
all 13 and 14 year olds getting glasses of wine at Christmas dinner. That's not what we're talking sure. about here. Um, it is a small, a small, a relatively small group and a smaller group than it would have been in previous generations. But it is happening at home. And similarly, these underage, under, under 18s are most likely to be drinking at someone else's home or their own home. And so parents are facilitating safe spaces or what they think they're doing is facilitating safe spaces in the home where they can keep an eye on how much is being consumed, the context of consumption, maybe the outcome of consumption so that there's you know less chance of getting involved in a fight or getting involved in inappropriate behaviour of some other sort. Um, if they keep the children at home and mind them at home. Now, that's true. It does protect them from some of the exposures that they might have if they were out in parks or hanging around streets. But it's also enabling them to have this um, opportunity of pretending to be adult in the home. So it makes the home a drinking space, a legitimate drinking space, which they may, the children already may well have observed uh, from their parents or in visiting other people's homes. And, and that's risky over the long term for public health in general. So while protecting young people or thinking that you're protecting young people from some things, you're actually exposing them to equally problematic contexts and situations. Mm. Sheila, maybe maybe we can bring you back in on this point as well, just to expand a little bit on that. I mean, obviously the risk to children, as you said before, you know, when there is reasonable data to point and research which points to um, exposure to alcohol at an early age leads to potentially to binge drinking and to and and other levels. But what do those numbers look like? You know, I mean, we talk sometimes in in percentage terms here and, and, and maybe not always maybe explaining just the, the, the totality of this. So maybe you might just uh, look through or tease through some of those numbers for us. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I know from the, the HBSE we were talking about that something like about 86,000 children have been really drunk. You know, 86,000 is, you know, Crow Park and more on uh, All-Ireland, you know, final day. It's, it's an enormous number of young people. We think of the order of 60,000 young people start drinking every year. And again, these are very big numbers and they, they, they and it's every year. It's another 60,000 next year, another 60,000 the, the year after. So it, does, it isn't surprising that by the time you reach the age of 19 or whatever, that you know 93% at that stage of, of our 19-year-olds are, are drinking. And again, if you sort of, you know, look to see, well, what does that look like in terms of, you know, that that those levels of numbers, we, we would have probably see something of the order of, um, well, we know already that within the EU, within their 18 to 24-year-olds, we have the highest level of, of binge drinking there. And when we talk about binge drinking, so it's, you know, six or more standard drinks at, at, at one time, but what does that mean and what, what can that lead to? It really can lead to dependency. And uh, we, we've seen from other studies like the, the My World uh, study, which was done through, through Jigsaw and with, um, with, with UCD. We did some analysis of that. Uh, Dr. Bobby Smith would have looked at that. And we'd get some kind of number, something of the order of about 6,000 of, um, of, of young people in that early adulthood are likely to be dependent drinkers and you know at such an early age to have dependency you know in times past we thought of dependency more as an older person's problem um you know something that you saw you know maybe towards you know your 50s or something like that where you you, you might see it but to see people in their early 20s um you know six thousand odd 
being dependent drinkers, it tells you that there is a very serious problem. And, you know, just going back again, you know, with exposure, perhaps through parents, through parents' own drinking, that, that's an element as well. But going back to this fundamental thing, I think about the lifestyle appeal, the marketing that, that's put out there, there's a number of fantastic pieces of research which have actually looked to see, well, does all this exposure to marketing, does it actually have an impact? And, and the absolute straight answer is yes. If you are exposed at a younger age to alcohol marketing, the research now clearly shows you are simply more likely to start drinking and you're more likely to start drinking and start drinking drinking more. There would be, um, there was a, a very big, um, if you like, synthesis of, of studies put together, so over 160 odd studies that were pulled together by uh, Thomas Baber and uh, Jane Sargent, just came out there uh, a couple of months ago. And it really looked at all these different types of marketing, you know, whether it's, you know, sort of seeing things digitally, whether it's on TV, whether it's, um, you know, actually buying products and merchandise. And no matter what type of marketing that we're looking at, there was a cause, there was an effect. And the effect was that, that young people were starting to drink as a result of that. And that was regardless of their home background. It's regardless of whether their parents were drinking, whether their parents were, you know, actually causing things which in itself is a risk factor but the advertising and the marketing was the a, a, a very a very important factor in whether people start to drink or not exposure to that marketing Nora what might you think of that or what have you any contribution that might add to that yes and I don't know that meta synthesis Sheila so I'm, I must get it from you but I know James Sargent's work and I think it. Um, so maybe I think it goes without saying, but yes, the evidence is conclusive that the exposure to the normalization of drinking to core is a risk factor in underage drinking. And the reason why is because it normalizes the concept of drinking in the first place. So you will always get this contest between public health and marketing and essentially marketing is winning it um, in that public health wants uh, alcohol to be seen and regarded as a substance, whereas marketing wants alcohol to be categorized, perceptually categorized as a, a great access to experiences and lifestyles and and in absolutely part of that message from any alcohol brand is in moderation and it acts uh, the, the term in moderation or responsible or non-excessive drinking it's absolutely indispensable to an alcohol brand's narrative and like being drunk is not a good look for an alcohol brand, but that doesn't mean to say that alcohol brands don't want to increase their market shares and to increase their rates of consumption among their existing markets. So, so I know that when you look at it, it's almost impossible to square that circle. You cannot keep on driving a profit-driven industry without causing the population to drink more right well look i think that's a that's a pretty good note on which we can end because we're we're pretty much out of time now for for today's discussion so i'd like to thank our guests Dirsha mcgowan nora campbell and sheila ginheaney for their time today 
If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed today, you'll find more information on our website at alcoholireland.ie or if you have any concerns about how best to manage your child's engagement with alcohol, you can seek further advice and support from askaboutalcohol.ie where you'll find a very comprehensive parent guide which takes you step by step to how best to communicate with your child about the risk and offers many great tips and advice on how to successfully navigate this challenging issue. So thank you one and all. The next time on The Alcohol File, we'll be discussing the bad economics of alcohol. And we'll be joined by another interesting panel of guests to discuss issues such as the significant cost burden on our society and the economy, the untold impact of creativity, enterprise and productivity, and a special focus on the impact of targeted alcohol marketing and promotion. So thank you for listening and until the next time, stay safe.